Oh, hey, what's up? You're tuned into From the Ground Up, the podcast where culinary entrepreneurs share their stories. I'm your host, Danielle Berg. I'm really excited to have a friend of mine on the podcast today. Her name is Dorothy Elizabeth, and she's an experimental mixologist. Dorothy graduated from the University of Michigan with a chemical engineering degree and entered the cocktail and culinary world shortly after she graduated. And she started out her career in Detroit, moved to New York City in 2018, where she quickly applied her science background and her molecular techniques to different cocktail programs across the city. She helped open and oversee pop-ups and bar programs at Mace, Henry at the Life Hotel, Straylight, La Avenue at Saks Fifth Avenue, and Lioness. So welcome, Dorothy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy you're here. For everyone listening, Dorothy and I are sharing a virtual cocktail. Dorothy, what are you drinking? I have a milk punch from back when we did the Lioness Residency in Tribeca. So it's like this old school style of punch. And I topped it with some champagne. Sounds delicious. I have some tequila and uh, hibiscus lemongrass sparkling beverage I got at Trader Joe's. And it's actually pretty good. Sounds fancy. Cheers. I really go all out, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. I'm super happy to have you on here today because we have known each other for a little bit now. I think the first time we met was at an event we did together, I think right, actually right when you moved to New York. So it's been fun and we've stayed in touch and we've stayed friends. So I'm happy to chat with you, especially during this time. And it's obviously a really hard time to be in the culinary space or to be a mixologist or a bartender during this time with the coronavirus pandemic. So I kind of wanted to see what you've been up to and how you're adjusting to life outside the bar. So it has definitely been a transition. Um, I didn't anticipate my last day behind the bar at Mace being my last day. Um, It seemed to happen very abruptly, but I'm all, I'm a huge proponent for safety and it became very apparent that unless we left and came back, we wouldn't be able to provide delicious cocktails safely. Um, in terms as to what I've been up to, um, I decided to go leave New York, uh, just temporarily. I still have my apartment there and I've been hanging out at my parents. Um, they live down in South Jersey, um, kind of close to Cape May near the water. And I'm there in the middle of nowhere, um, going for hikes, enjoying the solitude, I am still pretty active in terms of the cocktail world. There are a lot of really great initiatives from different brands that are having people do different cocktail hours and create different cocktails for social media purposes. 
um, as well as I'm working with Portland Cocktail Week, where I'm one of their deans of applied science, and we're doing a series of educational courses. So very busy, but and very fun, but totally different than what I would traditionally be doing. Yeah. And that science program, is that a cocktail science program or just a general science program? I know you are a scientist at heart, so it could be either knowing you. So it's a cocktail science program. It's based through on the Campari Academy, Campari being an Italian aperitif brand, pretty big liquor brand. And they're working with Portland Cocktail Week, which I've worked with for the last two years. And so Portland Cocktail Week is a really big um, kind of like cocktail convention. And they break down a curriculum by different, they call them majors. Um, So I do one in applied science. So it's about how you can incorporate scientific practices behind the bar. Um, I focus particularly on flavor science. So the class that I'm teaching, which will be, I believe, the first week in June, Um, is going to be on maceration infusion and so how you can take these two different techniques and make them at home and so bartenders and home bartenders alike can take a very scientific approach to harnessing flavor while they're playing around with cocktails at their home. That sounds like a class I'd like to take. (laughs) (laughs) Are you guys going to be making cocktails in the class? I will be making some cocktails. Um, It's going to be live streamed on Facebook And then I'll be teaching basically an hour-long class with a bunch of demos. Um, Some of the other classes I've done, I did one with Westward Whiskey on ice, and that also incorporated cocktails. So as long as there's a cocktail in hand, it's typically pretty fun. Yeah, that sounds fun. What other brands have you worked with during the pandemic? Um, At the moment, I've done a cocktail piece with Laird's Apple Brandy. And I'm also doing a piece for Ford's gin. And then I'll be working with Campari for the educational component um, within the next couple weeks. Uh, So it's kind of been a really fun grab bag of fun brands reaching out and brands that I've had good relationships with, um, trying to get different bartenders and mixologists on board to keep us busy and kind of keep the cocktail conversation going. I think we did an event together with Hennessy when you first moved back, right? That was the brand we did an event with together? Yes, and that was so much fun. They gave us all of that $300 a bottle XO to mix cocktail with. <laughs> that was so fun. Those drinks were so good. I do remember what you made that night. Oh, yeah. I did a play off of a cognac Manhattan with – it was the XO Hennessy, so the 30-year-old. Uh, with some coqui barolo, some soy sauce and bitters, and it was stirred up. That was delicious. I think I remember the one that had the orange peel in that. Was that was that that one? Yes, that was that one. So good, so good. So you moved to New York in 2018. Where did you start working? Right when you moved to New York from Detroit. When I first started in the city. I had reached out to a friend of mine, um, Megan Dorman. So this was when I was, I kind of came to the realization I was going to move to New York, but I was like going back and forth between Detroit and New York and didn't do a abrupt move. Um, 
So I reached out to Megan Dorman, who runs several bars, um, the Reigns Law Room, Dear Irving. Um, and she had me just hanging out at Reigns Law Room a couple days a week, getting accustomed to the bar scene. And then from there, I springboarded and opened Stray Light in Chinatown and spent quite a bit of time there. Could you talk a little bit about what Stray Light is and was under, I believe, under a restaurant, right? Yes. So Stray Light was or is a really fun concept. Um, it had three different floors. And so each floor was a different experience. The top floor uh, was based around this really great sushi chef who was a friend of mine, Kazuo. And he did an omakase seated, coursed out experience. So tons of different sushi. He called himself the uni king. So it was a lot of uni. Uh, the first floor was um, an izakaya, so you're looking at more the fast, casual, hot Japanese dishes. And then the bottom floor, which was stray light, which was an immersive art installation uh, with really beautiful paneling. They had two really great artists build it out. And I worked with Jamie Jones out of London, and he did an a la carte menu and I did an omakase-inspired cocktail flights. And so people would sit at the bar, similar to how you would sit down at a sushi bar with an omakase chef. They sat down with me, and we did courses of cocktails, typically six to seven, um, some half portions, some full size, all ranging in ABV. And it was all about catering an experience to a person's particular palate. And no two omakase seatings were the same series of cocktails. So they were customized to the guest. Wow. That sounds fun. I didn't even realize that's that's what you were doing there. That sounds like a really fun, different experience and super personalized, which I think people are looking for now in terms of dining out and going out to drink. So do you have any any fond memories of an omakase flight you did at Stray Light or any special drinks you mixed over there that you kind of kind of saved in, in your archives and used somewhere else? Definitely. There, a lot of these drinks were off the cuff and they were very much inspired by the people that were sitting in front of me. And the more adventurous the people in front of me were, the more adventurous I was. And so I would go to the market each day and just pick up a lot of different ingredients. And there was one group, it was a series of different writers and food writers. And they were just, they were with, they brought a chef with them and they were like, go do whatever you want. And I was like, really? And that was fun because I did some aerated blue cheese cocktails with poblano and a lot of bok choy. And my palate's typically, I like savory ingredients in a really fun, citrusy and refreshing way. So I remember the seating that I did with them. They let me be as innovative as I like. And so I was able to do some really fun carbonation techniques and built a lot of really beautiful drinks around them. And that was definitely one of my favorites. Can you talk about the process of making something like that blue cheese drink and the carbonation process that you kind of went through when you were making those cocktails? Oh, so when I'm talking about aerating blue cheese, 
We obviously know blue cheese is a solid. Um, it's kind of like sticky and gooey. It's not something that you would imagine that would form into a liquid easily. And so I would use an ISI, so some a whipped cream canister, and I would take my blue cheese and I would heat it, incorporate it with a little bit of like cream. And I would take it and charge it a few times with some nitrogen, um, similar to how you'd make a whipped cream. But instead, this would be a blue cheese whipped cream, so it'd be aerated. And I would take that and measure out my desired portion and then take that and shake it into a cocktail. So it would be aerated, nice and foamy. And so when I would shake it into my cocktail, which in this instance was like a pineapple syrup, some fresh juice, poblano, gin, and I would whip in the aerated blue cheese, it would form a nice foam and a froth on top, which I sprinkled like hot Dorito powder over top, which was kind of hilarious. That sounds really good. You got to make that for me sometime. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Count me in. So obviously you make crazy cool, interesting cocktails that incorporate science. So I would love to learn a little bit more about your background. So can you tell me about the moment you were kind of first introduced into the craft cocktail world and introduced to using science in cocktails? Um, it wasn't an immediate connection. Um, when I was in undergrad, I just was this, I, I looked like a Barbie. I had long blonde hair. I was really cute. And I was doing track and field at the time. So I couldn't do a work study job. And so I got a job bartending at this like seedy little like nightclub in Ann Arbor where I went to school and I bartended there and it was fun. It was fine, but it was a little too shady. So I shifted and worked at this cocktail bar and it's actually hilarious to think about, but the woman who ran the bar thought I was just a complete idiot and that they just hired me because I was cute, which was totally true because the owner did have a thing for me. But um, she was giving me such a hard time because I didn't, I went in kind of blind and with not a tremendous amount of experience. But since I'm ultimately a student and I do have that scientific background, I just dove into it like I dive into any of my studies. And even though I didn't stick last very long at that job, it opened up a door to me in terms of like classic cocktails. And so at the next job, I really ran with it and would go to the markets and work with these different chefs that I would be working with and started coming up with really fun and creative drinks and kind of springboarded me into that. Um, I don't believe if it wasn't for that one woman being like hard on, hard on me when I was first getting into it, like I wouldn't have been challenged. Um, and she definitely, her name is Alyssa, I think Bostic. I haven't talked to her in probably like eight years, but she definitely was something that sparked my interest because I realized that there was a craft behind it. And that third job that you took when you kind of started exploring different ingredients and working with chefs was that when you were still in college um I was definitely still in school at the time um and so I didn't work full-time I was only doing it maybe three days a week and it wasn't a bar that did craft cocktails it was something where I worked Mondays and Tuesdays and I 
had just asked, well, can I do a cocktail feature? And so they would custom order me a bottle. And then I would like come in with things that I purchased from the market and I'll come up with a cocktail. And this was a bar that served like $3 beers and like $5 shots of Jameson or whatever it was. And they would let me put on these cocktails on for one night that were, I mean, this is Michigan, like several years ago that were $10 a piece. And we slowly built a really great following of people coming in, seeing the cocktails on our social media and coming in specifically for them. So it was really fun to just do something from scratch that I was just very passionate about where no one was forcing me to do it. It was, I really wanted to, and I thought it was fun. And since I thought it was fun, I just kept doing it and it turned into a thing. How did you decide to jump into working as a bartender when you were still in school, studying chemical engineering? You know, you have such an interesting background for what you do. So I find it interesting that you kind of one day were like, I'm going to go work at a bar. So I feel like there was a reason behind that decision. I, uh, I'm curious to know what that reason well, was. Well, the fun thing about the bar industry, and if you are just a guest at a restaurant, you might not know, but with alcohol, there are a lot of really big brands that have a lot of money to take you out and have you do fun things. And so a lot of my drive being in the cocktail industry had to do with the fact that I was getting flown out to all of these really fun places. I was winning money in these different competitions. I was working with a bunch of my friends. Like when I was in Detroit, I was opening up a bar that I was super passionate about. At least once a month, I was getting flown out to like Italy or London, or I'd get to go down to Kentucky and do the bourbon trail. I got flown to New York for a national final of a cocktail competition. And it was just so fun because and I told myself that it ever stopped being fun and I stopped being able to travel, then I would stop. But as I became more successful, a lot of the things that were those perks that I really loved doing, like teaching the classes, creating cocktail menus, and ultimately traveling around, they became like the highlights and the pinnacles of my of my time and what I became known for doing. And there didn't really seem like a reason to stop. Like if someone's paying you to make a cocktail and they're going to pay for your travel and have you go somewhere and make some drinks. Oh, heck yes. Of course I'm going to do that. Like that seems stupid. <laughs> like, why do I want to be stuck in an office? I don't. I mean, sounds like the dream. It's such a good way to travel and see the world and do what you love at the same time. So I know you've done a ton of these competitions that you were talking about. And if I remember correctly, you were in a competition in Detroit. I believe it was male-dominated, a male-dominated competition. Oh, yeah. And you won. Yeah. I don't want to spoil it for everyone, but can you talk about that competition specifically? Because I think that I remember talking to you about this and it being sort of a pivotal moment in your career. And I'd love to hear the story. Yes. So, um, I had kind of, when I left Ann Arbor, I was still living in Ann Arbor, but I decided I wanted to work in Detroit because there was a huge restaurant boom and there was a little bit more of a cocktail movement and I wanted to learn more. 
So I started working with my friend Paul and we opened up this bar program called Republic. And he looked at me and he's like, there's this competition coming. It's called the Detroit Bar Fight. And it's like a bracketed summer long competition where they have six people go up to head, head to head. And it's all about beating people in different rounds. And the top people from each of these different competitions all get together and compete in a final, like NCA March Madness style. And he looked at me and he said, you have to compete. You're going to go in and you're going to blow everyone away. No one's going to know who you are, but you're going to win the whole thing. And I looked at him and this is one of my biggest mentors. His name's Paul Fraternek and he works out of Mabel Gray now. And he said this to me and I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds crazy. Fast forward, I get into the competition and I was invited to compete. I went in did not know a single soul in the entire building. I, I was not very cemented in the industry. I did not know anybody. And I just went in, competed my first round, competed the second, competed the third. And I wound up winning the one day. And then I advanced to the finals. And I wound up sweeping and winning the whole thing, um, which was really fun because I won money and I was able to like finance a trip to Europe. But it was this great kind of turning point, especially being new to Detroit at the time, um, because it established me as a contender. And then from there, I was able to get a lot of opportunities. Um, the competition was like 90% male and probably like 85% white males, like bunch of dudes in like bow ties and suspenders and wax mustaches. Definitely not me, but it was really fun. That's the stereotype, right? <laughs> but it's so funny. And it was a tremendous amount of fun. And it opened a lot of doors because it allowed me suddenly to get taken very seriously because I went in as a wild card and left having beaten all of the big name bartenders, male bartenders in the entire city. And so from there, I was able to kind of get a leg up and get a lot of other fun, fun opportunities from it. Um, and kind of like break into that cocktail click within that city. And you've gone off and competed in tons of other competitions that I know you've been super successful in. So I love that story. I think it's promising for people who are trying to break through in the industry. And I think entering in those competitions is a really great way to get your name out there and meet new people and intro introduce yourself to kind of the cocktail scene in whatever city you're competing in. So that brings me to my point. When you speak about the competition was largely male, white male, and you were one of however many females in the competition, won the whole thing. What has it been like being a female in this industry that's predominantly male and white male? And do you feel like you're taken seriously or have you had any issues in your career that you've had to face because you're a woman? Um, since being in New York and it, there's a more established female presence in New York, it's been tremendous amount easier. Um, when I was in Detroit, it was really hard because for a long time, I was the only female bartender working in the city, like the downtown area, um, working in a craft cocktail bar. And it was just me and there was one other girl that worked like the next city over. Um, 
and we were that was the only two that I knew about at the time. There weren't any other girls that were working. And in Detroit, it was really hard because I would have people say, well, she's only successful because she is that token girl. She's only getting into these competitions because they needed to have a girl present. She's only doing this because she is a woman. It's easier for her because she is a woman because they need a token female present. Um, A lot of stuff like that has happened. I've had issues where I would try to report harassment and they wouldn't be taken seriously. I remember a boss laughing at me and telling me that the guy probably just had a crush on me. And when I was like, this person's harassing me and he's like, ha ha ha. And I just remember being like, what the heck? This is ridiculous. Um, And there are countless more experiences from guests at the bar coming up and asking my bar back to make a drink. So like my assistant, because they couldn't imagine that I would be the bartender or guests coming up to the bar and like physically grabbing my arms or like grabbing me to try and get my attention, Um, which is all pretty upsetting. I'm still looking back at it, like I'm surprised that I persevered through all of that. I feel like when I was in Detroit, since there wasn't any other girls and there wasn't any sort of like shared experience, I kind of just had to put on a tough face and get really thick skin. Um, And then fast forward to being in New York, like all that behavior is super unacceptable and nobody would even to think to treat me that way in any sort of spectrum. Um, And it's when you're coming from a secondary market and moving into a larger market like New York, it's nice to see like the progression. Um, I feel like I'm really happy that I left Detroit when I did because it was still too many years behind where I needed it to be for it to be emotional, emotionally supportive workplace. Um, so I'm happy I left, but now it's just easier. Well, except all the bars are closed now, but of course, no, I, that was something I was going to ask you. And I've been thinking about that, about the mixology and bartending scene here in New York and kind of how that would be different from your experience in Detroit. So, you know, I'm happy you did persevere through that and build thick skin and, you know, advocate for yourself throughout that whole experience and take that, take action to come move to New York and build your family here. And I'm happy that you've kind of found people who have shared experiences and you're able to kind of connect with them and talk to them about that. And now you're in a place where you feel really comfortable. So have you kind of built a, you know, coalition of bartenders or mixologists in New York that you communicate with often, you know, pre-pandemic and now during pandemic? Oh, definitely. Um, So I definitely have, and I call it my cocktail coven. So kind of like a witch's coven of cocktails. And it's basically a lot of my like favorite women in the industry. And they're some of my really just some of my best friends who are just like smart and intelligent and we talk to each other all the time. Um, And then as whole, there's, I mean, as a whole, there are several like industry groups that I'm a part of and large text chains and my coworkers at Mace or my coworkers that I worked with at Lioness where we're all like 
okay um, trying to make sure we're sharing our resources, especially after there was the mandatory closure of restaurants and people either shifted to to-go or to-go cocktails, a lot of people were left without a job. And it was a lot of these groups and a lot of my network where we all started to kind of, we all relied on one another, where we were all sharing links for like how to navigate unemployment or how what different charities were available. And I'm very fortunate that I'm like, I am in great shape. Like I'm hanging out, I'm having a good time, but there are a lot of other people in the industry that are really struggling to get unemployment or they're, we're trying to pass along different charities or different food drives and different initiatives so that they can make sure that they stay fed and make sure that they pay their bills. I'm very blessed that I'm not in that case, but there are are a tremendous amount of people that are struggling. So ew, that's a downer, but it's real. Yeah. And do you guys kind of communicate about what you think is going to happen to, you know, the bar scene and bars, especially in New York? Are you communicating about kind of what you guys think the future holds for yes, the industry? Um, we are. And I think... I mean, it's going to, what did Bill de Blasio say? He said something about September. I had been hearing a lot of things about like not really being open until September or not for like several months. And it's going to be totally different. It's going to involve temperature checks and masks and gloves and totally revised sanitation methods. Um, I'm already thinking about how how are they going to be able to take a restaurant where people sit in and like, obviously there's a business that pays their rent and how a place can pay their rent if they're at half capacity. Um, it's a total restructure of a business plan. It can, they do it? Yes. But you can't go about it and expect to do things how they were done before. You have to go forward and think of, okay, I need to have a retail strategy in place in terms of like to-goes, finding a source of income because just foot traffic coming in or sitting down um, in a forward-facing business isn't going to be enough um, to keep going. So I think it's going to require a lot of restructuring from sanitation. And there are a lot of people that are thinking about it and are trying to get balls rolling. I know for myself, I'm trying to develop and work on some like UV glass sanitizers as like a secondary measure. Um, I've been playing with um, UV lights, um, but that's just a fun, neat little project I'm working on. Of course you're working on something like that. I was just about to ask you, I mean, you're, you're smart and you're always thinking ahead. What's, what does the future look like and how are you going to be a part of that? So Guess everyone needs to come see you when they want to get a drink because you'll be UVing all of your glasses and passing that along to your other. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out some ways that people can construct and adapt current materials so that they can provide sanitation and lower, like mitigate risks. Um, yeah, in terms of how I fit into it, I think I always like to play things smart and I'm prepared to wait it out 
in the interim, I'm, I'm obviously, as I said before, I'm teaching classes on different molecular um, mixology techniques and kind of that gastrono gastronomy movement. Um, I'm going to keep doing those at least a couple of months um, simply to spread knowledge. Um, outside of that, as to when I would actively be behind a bar again, I'm not sure. I don't know if anyone has an idea as to when those will happen. I think that the shift to to-go cocktails within the city of New York is going to – I think that's something that is going to stay. Um, I think it's going to be needed, um, a needed source of income for a lot of places. And I think it's – going to be kind of like a fun adventure in terms of like open carry um, and kind of re-navigating the laws with that. I mean, I like to go cocktails in New Orleans and it makes sense for New York. So I kind of envision that staying. I mean, I don't know anything for sure, but I would think that we would be keeping to go cocktails for the indefinite future. I was reading some article that was talking about, you know, legalizing open container or legalizing drinking in public parks in New York. Do you think that's something that could happen? I could see that being something that could help, you know, drive business for a bunch of these restaurants I, and bars. I don't know about the drinking in public parks thing. I think this city would be hesitant to legalize that just because of the proximity to children. Um, I mean, I'm not directly opposed for it. I wouldn't be surprised if there would be like – designated areas kind of similar to have you, you have like a smoking section at the airport if there was like no alcohol past this limit but this other area is fine um i wouldn't be surprised if they did that or if there was an increase in um restaurants or bars that would allow more seating on the sidewalk and people that like expand into the sidewalk to make for more seating so they can do more socially distanced drinks um yeah that's mm -hmm. smart that's a smart idea do you have any recommendations for people who are trying to make delicious cocktails at home any ingredients that are kind of a must-have in your fridge or your pantry just to spice up your at-home drinks so you're not adding uh, sparkling hibiscus lemongrass trader joe's drinks uh, to your tequila oh like for me. sure my first and foremost thing is fresh fresh ingredients. So the best thing you can do is have a couple fresh lemons and fresh limes around. Nothing makes a margarita better than fresh citrus. Um, so having fresh lemons, limes, huge. Having some sparkling water lying around, things that you genuinely enjoy. Yes, do that. Um, even getting some like high quality sugar, whether it's like a pure agave or um, just some good brown, like raw cane sugar. And then from there, kind of like play with some syrups. Like you can make a little simple syrup with equal parts sugar and water and then throw in some vanilla bean or throw in some cinnamon sticks and start with really classic cocktails, like making a daiquiri where you have like rum, fresh lime juice and your syrup. But like you can remix it and take that syrup component and add other flavors or muddle things into it. Um, first and foremost, fresh things and just just play with it. All great suggestions. I've been stocking up on 
limes and jalapenos and trying to make spicy margaritas. And it's been semi-successful. Thanks for chatting and talking to me. I always end the podcast with asking my guests what their favorite song is right now. So I'd love to ask you, what's your favorite song right now? yes. I am obsessed with Doja Cat. Like, not even in a little way. Like, a lot. She makes some pop songs that are just freaking fun to dance to. I know Say So was a really big summer hit. I'm kind of, like, over it. But between her and, like, Juicy and she has just, like, some really – oh, Candy. Candy by Doja Cat is one of my favorites. I'm obsessed with her. I think she's hilarious. That's really funny. I I was talking about Doja Cat today, and I completely agree with you. She's so cool. She's 24 years old, if you didn't know that. So where can people contact you if if you want them to? Um, can they contact you on Instagram, email? What's uh, I'm sipping science. It's like sipping a drink. S-I-P-P-I-N-G science. Um, yeah, Instagram's great. You're always posting cool things, so definitely give her a follow either way. Dorothy, thank you so much for coming on from the ground up today. You've been a fabulous guest, and I will be posting her favorite song right now on at from the ground up pod. Thanks again, Dorothy. Yeah, thank you. Have a good night. Okay, you too. Bye.